This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. There's a lot of money coming from the federal government to help provide rural broadband internet access. But to get it, states have to prove they are ready to distribute it. There's going to be grant applications um, for all areas of the state which we've identified which do not have broadband available right now. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. Fayette County Schools will receive a check for more than $15 million today. Governor Jim Justice will present the check of more than $15 million to the school system to be used for the construction of the new Midland Trail Elementary School. The money is part of nearly $112 million the West Virginia School Building Authority approved to build new schools and upgrade others. Nineteen counties will share the money this fiscal year. The presentation will take place today at 10.30 a.m. in the Midland Trail High School Gymnasium. It is not immediately clear when the rest of the money will be distributed. Fossils of two new shark species have been found in the Mammoth Cave National Park cave system. Jacob Martin has more on the latest discovery. The two shark species would have inhabited the cave system over 325 million years ago. Jesse Cooper is a spokesperson for Mammoth Cave National Park. She said the National Park System's paleontology program helped identify the species from fossils found in 2019. So the two new species of sharks are called Troglocladotus tremblay and Glycmanius cariforum. Over 70 species of ancient fish have been identified at Mammoth Cave from over 25 caves that have been surveyed. Mammoth Cave would have looked much different when the two sharks existed. The cave would have been a part of a saltwater seaway where modern-day Europe and North Africa are now located. I'm Jacob Martin in Bowling Green. A Norfolk Southern train derailed in East Palestine, Ohio, a year ago this past Saturday. And the EPA has been in charge of the cleanup efforts. But as the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier reports, one scientist is criticizing the agency. This report is supported by the Fund for Investigative Journalism. Andrew Welton is a professor of civil, environmental, and ecological engineering at Purdue University. He came to East Palestine to sample drinking water a few weeks after the derailment. He was worried people were allowed back into town soon after the controlled burning of vinyl chloride ended. And he found statements from the EPA and other agencies were downplaying potential hazards. For example, the creeks were heavily contaminated two miles downstream. And government statements were that actually the contamination was contained to the derailment site. His concerns grew when he learned about how the EPA was monitoring air. The agency was relying on a piece of equipment called a photoionization detector. These handheld devices give a snapshot of chemical concentrations in the air. But they're not very precise. The EPA later admitted they were not sensitive enough to detect unhealthy levels of butyl acrylate, one of the chemicals in the spill. And it is with that faulty information that the evacuation order was lifted. Residents and business owners were encouraged to go back into their contaminated buildings. Welton says the agency should have made sure chemical levels were below health thresholds before allowing people back in. In the weeks that followed, 
Residents reported symptoms like headache, dizziness, nosebleeds, and gastrointestinal problems. Even workers from the CDC got sick in East Palestine. It just underscores how unprepared the agencies were in executing the public health and safety response that they injured their own sister agency workers. The EPA says it used the photoionization detectors to detect chemical concentrations high enough to cause acute, short-term, or life-threatening illnesses. Mark Derno is a response coordinator for the agency in East Palestine. To determine whether or not emergency levels uh, were present, um, acute, uh, acute levels were present, yes, we use these to make that determination. With butyl acrylate, some health impacts begin at 20 parts per billion. But because the chemical is detectable by odor at much lower concentrations, Derno says a simple smell test was used to tell if a building was safe for return. The odors would have been so strong um, at 20 parts per billion, those, uh, those, you wouldn't be able to uh, be in those buildings for more than a few minutes. Deborah Shore, the EPA's regional administrator, said the agency lifted the evacuation order because of the data coming in from what she calls an extensive and sophisticated air monitoring network the EPA had set up in the town. We don't have data that would show that exposure to the air in town is of at any levels of chemical that would be of health concerns. What about all those people who are having symptoms weeks and months after the derailment? Shore says it's possible that they were more sensitive to chemicals than others or that their symptoms were the result of stress and trauma. People can have uh, sensitivities to various types of trauma that express themselves physically and may be layered over past histories of trauma and other incidents that this uh, derailment triggered. Welton has consulted on other disasters, like a West Virginia chemical spill in 2014, in addition to wildfires and fuel spills. He says there's often a fog of war that local and even federal agencies fall under during a crisis. But in many cases, he says, they ask for outside help from academics and other experts. That didn't happen here, he says. All the agencies basically set up a bubble around themselves and kept Norfolk Southern and their contractors inside the bubble. EPA and state officials defend their response. Deborah Short says EPA followed the science and the law, and she points out no one died. For the Allegheny Front, I'm Reed Frazier. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 7.50. Becoming mostly sunny today, high temperatures in the 50s, clear skies tonight with lows in the 20s, and sunny tomorrow with highs in the 40s and 50s. Support for WVPB is provided by the West Virginia Land Trust, protecting special places for local communities. Details at wvlandtrust.org.
to have broadband connectivity for all of West Virginia within five years. There are progress and time markers that must be met to get all of the $1.2 billion federal dollars to complete the work. Randy Yowie sat down with Delegate Daniel Linville, a Republican from Cabell County, and broadband consultant Charlie Denny to talk about meeting those markers for the legislature today. $1.2 billion is what the federal government gave to West Virginia to give a five-year plan to get the last mile connected. I think it's somewhere around 200, 300,000 households. Um, it comes in phases, and, and with each phase, Delegate Linville, uh, you're going to get a, a, a certain amount of money depending on what you did in the last phase. Where do things stand now? So, uh, our state's plan has been submitted to the federal government for their approval, and we were actually the, I believe, seventh or eighth state uh, that, that got it in, but really, we were in on day two, and so I think we were actually the third, but they're calling us the seventh or eighth because our name starts with a W, and so if they, if they go alphabetically, uh, they're saying that we're seventh or eighth. Um, that's going to unlock that $1.2 billion. Um, there's going to be grant applications um, for all areas of the state which we've identified which do not have broadband available right now. Um, so there's a whole process that's been laid out um, for that and sort of what ways that we're going to be able to get it there with what technology and those things. All the scoring guidelines are online and pending the approval of, of, of the federal government, uh, we'll begin seeing those dollars uh, begin to be deployed and those, those grant applications be open uh, about mid-year. So it's about a quarter billion dollars in each phase, roughly. Yeah. So it's um, so the entire 1.2 will be available. But interestingly, the way that we're that we're going to be uh, putting that out is actually as um, as we receive invoices. So uh, unlike uh, some of the some of the programs of the past, what we're trying to do here is to say, look, uh, we want to see that you've done it. We want to see the invoices. We want to monitor that construction, and then we'll pay you. Okay. And Charlie, what we need to do here now is lay fiber out the cable. And what we haven't done so far is get it to the rough areas of the state. We're a mountainous state, there's no doubt about that. Um, so challenges are, and we keep hearing pole attachment. And talk to me about what that is. It's been a challenge, I'm sure, throughout your tenure. And, and do we go above ground or below ground? That's a good question. And the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, sometimes you go above ground, sometimes you, you go below ground. Uh, when, you, when you look at, at how a utility pole is segmented, uh, the top portion of the utility pole is what's called the hot zone, and that's where the electricity is, and no one except the power company is allowed in the hot zone. Below that, you have the telecommunications zone, and uh, previously, uh, the uh, incumbent telephone company had the privilege of being the lowest utility on the pole, and then everything above that requires a one-foot separation. So if you have a telephone cable and you've got a cable company and you've got a, an internet service provider and then some other utility on there, you can see where that starts to consume real estate. And in some cases, with new attachments, the old pole may not be strong enough to accept all of those utilities. So now you've got an entire pole replacement, which means that you have to engineer the pole, you've got to set the pole, and every utility has to relocate onto their pole. And in order to get a permit to be on the pole, uh, you have to make application with the power company, and then they have to go and engineer every single solitary pole. And just the engineering of those poles is time-consuming and expensive. 
Yeah. <laughs> Which is why $1.2 billion was allocated to well, get this, to be able to pay the price. Last year, Delegate Linville had a bill that would compel the power companies to make an inventory of those polls and make that available to the state so that they didn't have to go out and survey that poll two or three times. Maybe two or three people wanted to see it. You don't have to incur that expense over and over again. And the delay. And the delay. And the delay. Can, and, it, be, can it be done? Oh, it absolutely can. Um, so this is, this is not rocket science. In fact, in the, in, in, in the, in the uh, space of broadband, uh, rockets are actually now delivering, delivering broadband all over, the, all over the state, except for the National Radio Quiet Zone. So um, to, to one degree, I will tell you right now, if you live anywhere in this state other than the National Radio Quiet Zone along the Green Bank Observatory, you do have an option for broadband. Right. That is Starlink. Um, and so the, the beauty of what we're doing now, this, this remaining $1.2 billion, is we're getting additional options to folks. Um, hopefully at a lower cost. Starlink is a little expensive, admittedly. Um, uh, but, but can this be done? Absolutely. And, and the encouraging piece is that no one has said that $1.2 billion, in addition to the nearly $800 million that came out uh, from the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund a few years ago, the more than $200 million that we as a state have, just out of our own discretionary dollars, been able to put forward. Uh, folks, I, I said a, a few years ago that it wasn't just a $1 billion broadband strategy. It's a $2 billion broadband strategy, and it really is. So do we have the money? The answer to that is yes. Now we just have to execute. That was Delegate Daniel Linville and broadband consultant Charlie Denny speaking with Randy Yowie. To hear the rest of that interview, visit our website and tune in every day at 6 p.m. for the legislature today. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Jack Walker, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yowie. Eric Douglas is our news director, and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.